Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Yeah. What a joy. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, worship team did an amazing job this morning. Amen. Ministering to you in song. So anointed. And, you know, for us, it's a balance. It's excellent. It's, ex- it's excellence in musicianship, but it's anointing in worship. And it requires both to lead effectively. And so grateful for the multiplication of team leaders and members in our team. And so you guys did a great job and uh, appreciate so much your ministry. Uh, it's been a wonderful week. I pray that God has, uh, your awareness of God's presence has been rich this week in our fast. And of course, uh, we had our 18th and, by God's grace, final all-night prayer meeting in this facility. We had our 18th uh, prayer meeting on Friday night, and uh, it's very sentimental to me because I thought, you know, when I'm 70 years old, should the Lord tarry, I'm going to have very vivid memories of those 18 all-night prayer meetings in this facility when decades in the future we see God do amazing, amazing things. And to think of us coming together, little as much when God is in it, Amen. And we do not despise the day of small beginnings. Well, I want you to grab your Bible with me and go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. If you would, grab your Bible and then stand with me for the reading of Scripture. I do want to say thank you so much for streaming live. I saw dozens of you on YouTube uh, on my way in this morning uh, or Facebook. And we pray God speaks to you and ministers to you. I do also want to say next Sunday is going to be such a pivotal Sunday. Please make it, uh, plans to attend 6 to 8. Our friends from Chattanooga are going to be with us. It'll be stories of transformation. Many of you are going to get to hear testimonies maybe you've not heard. And then in a couple of weeks, we've got our married night, and uh, Pastor Fred Goodwin's going to be with us. We've only got space for 35 couples, so make sure you do so. You can get registered online at Church Center app or, or at the Next Steps table. We cannot wait. I want to invite you over the next few weeks, if I can, to bring your Bible with you to church, not as in like the app on your phone, but like the Codex. Bible, like if you have one at home, I just invite you to bring it along. If you don't have one, please let us know. Love to be able to supply you one. But if your mind is anything like mine, to focus in our world on what God is saying to us, it takes sometimes tangible engagement, right? And so if you don't have one, the words are going to be on the screen today, but I want to invite you to to bring one over the next few weeks. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Let's do something. Let's practice something. Why don't we just square kind of our shoulders Just for a moment, close our eyes, and before we read, let's just take a really deep breath. And now we receive the gift of Scripture. Verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive anyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. This is God's word. Amen? Take a seat. Let me show you a cool picture. This is my mother, Cindy Mosgrove, in all of her 80s glory. Yes, that is yours truly, Raphael. <laughs> that is me. Oh, don't oh, stay, stay. Yep. Don't don't jump. Don't jump the gun on me. Stay back for me. There we go. That is yours truly, and uh, this is me as the Ninja Turtle. Right? I love Ninja Turtle. I I fell out of the car one time going about forty miles an hour on a very busy street, and uh, thank God God preserved my life. I'd have rolled into a ditch, and by the time I woke up, I looked, and my dad was a couple hundred yards up in front of me, and. I took off sprinting and got in the car and got home and said, Mom, you won't believe what happened. I fell out of Dad's car and I rolled like Donatello. And so, uh, but I loved, I loved back in the day, some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And what's so amazing about this picture is that, yes, my parents started in a kind of a difficult season of life, very young. Uh, They were empty nesters by the age of 40 because their kids had already grown up and been completely out of the house. So they started poor and very young. My mom, you see, is smiling in this photograph, um, and life was amazing. It really was. But there's a backstory around this time. I'll show you the next picture. This is my mom, and this is my dad. 
at my grandmother's house, what I call Mamaw, but is Jane Mossgrove on Mowbray Mountain in Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. And the backstory goes is I used to go to my Mamaw's house several times a month to be babysat by her. And my Mamaw, man, she had a really difficult upbringing and certainly had been married to a man that much later in life he came to know Jesus. So life was difficult for her. And Jesus said, in this world, you're going to face trouble. And these moments are either our undoing or our rebirth. And for her and her pain and loss and challenge, I remember my Mamaw, I'll show you a picture of her. She began to get up really, really, this is the last few years of her life. She began to get up really early in the morning and pray. And I never forget one of my most vivid memories from my childhood is no matter how early I got up in the morning when I spent the night with her, she's a morning person and she was always the first one up in the house. And I remember not even going to church because I did not know Jesus. And for that season of my life, I would remember her picking me up and rocking me and praying. And she was baptized in the spirit. So she would pray in the spirit. My earliest, most vivid memories or the felt, the, the touch of her hands. And she would usually take her fingers and go on either side of my ear and grab my face. And she would pray. And I would get up, and when I would walk into the living room, she was always there, and she would be sitting in her chair with her Bible open in her lap, and she was staring out the window. Sometimes she was reading it, but most of the time she was just staring out the window. And if I can remember correctly, her eyes were a bit unfocused, and she was there in the room, but boy, was she somewhere else. She didn't get to see most of her grandkids. She didn't get to see Knox. I'll show you a picture of her feeding Knox when he was just a little, just a little guy, a couple of months old. And um, so, so unbelievably precious memories. But I want to tell you that childhood memory has so imprinted something on my brain. Because honestly, for I think most of us, very early on in your spiritual journey, prayer is a little bit like a drag. It was kind of like the thing you do if you're a good Christian, but it was very much in the ought-to category, not the want-to category. And you know, it's like eating your vegetables. I know I need to do so. It's good for me, but I don't like, for me, I actually love eating vegetables. But it was very clear that she was experiencing something in prayer that I was not. And that for, for her, listen to me, prayer was not a discipline in any way, shape, or form. It was a delight. But if we're honest... For a lot of us in this room, as we start best year yet, I've entitled today's message, Best Prayer Yet. Because if 2024 is going to be our best year yet, it must indeed be our best prayer yet. And I don't want you to feel any guilt or shame, but prayer for many of us is very much in the duty, discipline category, not the delight. I mean, we're all so busy. It's hard to find time to pray. And when we do, it can be a bit boring, at least compared to what we're used to in the mental stimulation of 21st century America. Our brain is distractible. Our brain is jumpy and all over the place. And when we finally do sit down to pray, we often experience ourselves, just as one of my favorite spiritual writers, Robert Mulholland, once said, check out this awesome quote, prayer for us as Americans is often us just worrying in God's general direction. That's what prayer is, just kind of worrying out here somewhere. That's prayer. Prayer's not intentional. Prayer's not clear. It's just worrying kind of out there. I have young kids. And, you know, many of us, we say, you know what? I'm just going to make excuses. I have young kids or I have an early job start or I work out in the morning or I'm active personality or I have ADHD or whatever it is. And then we feel a little bit of guilt and we just pick up our phone and go about our day. So I want to this morning normalize this for you, okay? I want to make a bold statement. You and I are living through what is perhaps one of the most difficult moments in all of human history to pray. We live in that day. I mean, the smartphone alone is a death blow to prayer. We literally have, I'm not a conspiracist, but I'll tell you one thing about conspiracy in capitalistic America. We have multi-billion dollar companies who are hiring right now across the globe the brightest minds in the world from all over the world with one aim. They got one aim. They want to distract you and addict you and monetize your attention and through monetization of your attention, modify your behavior in every portal they can find known to you in your hands. That's what they're paid to do billions of dollars. Y'all, this is embarrassing, but I'm going to confess to you something. I'm actually old enough to remember this thing from the 90s we used to call boredom. <laughs> this is embarrassing, but let me confess for a moment. It's hard to imagine. So those of you under the age of 25, okay, 
Back in the 90s and the 2000s, when you were like driving in your car, you would come to a red light and you would be at the red light. Like you had to sit there at the red light, like with your chin up. Like it was the craziest thing. Like you couldn't look at a phone. Like you couldn't stop and catch up on the text messages. It's crazy. I mean, it's a crazy day we lived in back then. There were times where we would show up for coffee and when you got there, the person was late and you had to sit there and wait on them. Like with your chin up. Like it was crazy, okay? Like you didn't have a moment to constantly re-engage and re-engage and re-engage. But you know what's so amazing? Those days were incredible gifts to our spiritual life because they were all little potential portals to God in prayer. Now all of those moments have just been swallowed up by the digital beast altogether. Not only that, we have money and wealth. I've got a list of these, by the way. We've got money and wealth. We're the wealthiest generation in all of history. All of history. Now you say, you may not be that wealthy, but we are. Collectively, as a nation, you're like, certainly I'm not. But we as a generation are the wealthiest. And with wealth comes all sorts of things. I mean, money can, listen, in the American church, money can do a lot of what prayer does, but it's way easier and faster. So that's where most leaders and pastors have moved to because it doesn't require accountability. It can be bought. It can be engaged. I mean, money can do a lot. Why pray for your daily bread when you can just door dash it? We're going somewhere today. And why pray when you... Think about this. You know with money, and more money comes more activity and more complexity in life. Next one, we have science and technology. Now, these are good things. These are answers to prayer. But why pray when you can just set an appointment over Zoom with the telehealth doctor? Why would you pray? Why would you ask God to heal you when you can telehealth? We can instantly get access. Why ask God when you can ask Siri? What about this? More than anything, secularism and cynicism is the air we breathe in America. So even when God does answer prayer, we often think, was that really God or was that just coincidence? My point is that if you struggle to pray, you're not alone. As St. Teresa of Avila used to say, when it comes to prayer, we're all beginners. We're all beginners. And yet prayer is, notice this next slide, the portal to life with God. That's what prayer is. The life that all of us most deeply desire in the marrow of our bones, whether we identify that undercurrent of of human desire as a yearning for God, or we, like Americans, tragically misidentify it as a yearning for wealth or fame or sex or beauty or romance or marriage or you fill in the blank. But prayer is the door. And so we have to learn to pray in a place like Atlanta with a smartphone not far away in the busyness of life. And there is no one, of course, better to learn from more than Jesus. So let's just look for a few moments at Jesus' relationship to God the Father in prayer. Then we're going to come right back to Luke 11. If you have a Bible open with me, turn a few pages to the left. Let me just give you a sampling of a kind of running literary theme in Luke's biography of Jesus. Let's start in Luke chapter 5. You'll see it also on the screen. Verse 15. Let's read. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more. Notice this. So that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often, everybody say often, withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That could be translated, he frequently withdrew. Or one version is, was his, as was his custom. He would slip away and go to a quiet, solitary, distraction-free place and he would pray. Turn the page to the right, Luke chapter 6. Down at verse 12, one of those days, Jesus went out onto a mountainside to pray and he spent the whole night praying to God. It's interesting, he goes out of the city, he goes up on a mountain and he prays all night long. Turn the page, chapter 9, look at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him, so not alone, and he again went up on a mountain to pray, this time with his disciples. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. He's literally transformed in prayer. Now, I just read you three stories that is a minuscule sampling of the prayer that is woven into the fabric of Jesus' everyday life, into his morning routine, into his weekly schedule. It seems like, friends, if you're honest Bible readers, when you read the narratives, he made time for prayer no matter how busy he was. 
If he was so jammed throughout his work day, he would literally stay up all night and go on a mountainside. He would go great to great lengths to get out of the city to go to a quiet place, either getting up at dark 30 in the morning or hiking up to the top of a mountain. And it seems like for Jesus, all of this was not discipline. It was delight. He was enraptured in his relationship to the Father. With all of that in mind, now let's come back to Luke chapter 11 and just work through the text line by line. We've only got four verses. Verse 1 again, Luke 11. Another day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Everybody say certain place. This means that Jesus had a little hiding place that was for him called the place of prayer. Should be true for you and I as well. When he finished, finished, that's a chronological term. That's interesting. So there's a kind of a dedicated time. That means it was finished time. So he had a dedicated time and a dedicated place. Notice Jesus did this. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John, now he's referencing here the baptizer, taught his disciples to pray. Now, this is a fascinating request on two levels. Let me give you. One, it's fascinating because Jesus did so many amazing things. Performing miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick. Yet we have no record in all of the Gospels of the disciples ever saying to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to perform miracles. We have no record of anyone ever asking Jesus, teach us to pray. Lord Jesus, teach us to walk on water. Yet Jesus, teach us to heal the sick. The one time we have a Jesus, teach us to, it's Jesus, teach us to pray. Now what that means, friends, is that it seems like that the disciples Disciples who are living with Jesus 24-7 were smart enough to understand that Jesus' extraordinary outer life in the world was the byproduct of a far more extraordinary inner life with God. That that was the well Jesus was drawing from. Another layer that's really interesting here, and I don't know if you've ever been taught this before, but these are first century Jewish boys who know how to pray. They should not ask a Messiah to teach them how to pray. And I'm going to tell you why they do that in just a moment. They know how to pray. These men have stopped three times a day since they've been six years old and prayed, as was Hebrew custom, a prayer called the Ahmad, which was a precursor to the Lord's Prayer. They know how to pray. Yet they come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. What they're really saying is, Jesus, teach us to pray like you. That's what they're saying. That's what the text is implying. We say our prayer, Jesus, we stop, but it's rote and it's religious or whatever. It's not bad. But when you pray, that's a whole another dimension, Jesus. We, we recognize this. We want that. We're not experiencing whatever it is that you're experiencing. And we wait on that. Now, we come here this morning to Dwelling Place Church from all over the map geogra geographically. We were all born in different places, different parts of America. But we also come from all different parts of the spiritual journey map. We're drawn here for the most part. Well, let me just say this. We are likely here on a Sunday morning because at some level in your heart, you have some attraction to the person of Jesus or to, to the single person next to you that invited you here. Okay, but either way, that's good too. I'm fine with that. If you come for attraction for the single individual, keep coming. But you're likely still here. At some point, you're open to at least, or you are full on drawn like a magnet to Jesus. And if you this morning find at any level in your heart a resonation with the disciples' prayer, God, we want what you have, Jesus, I would invite you right now, here in the middle, not this afternoon, not tomorrow, not at Connect Group, you'll forget about it, but right here, I want you just to close your eyes. I'm going to put a prayer of five words on the screen, but we're going to close our eyes for a moment, take a deep breath. One, two, maybe three or four. Now let's open our eyes and look on the screen and let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That's a heartfelt prayer. So let's explore the practice of prayer together as a community. Now in the library of scripture, folks, prayer is a bit of an umbrella term for all sorts of different types of way relating to God. But at most basic, I want to define it for you. You'll see prayer is the medium through which we communicate and commune with God. In that sense, prayer isn't practice at all because of all the practices of what we call spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, but prayer or life with God is the end. That's why we can't really call prayer a practice. But let me define practice of prayer next slide. The practice of prayer is learning to set aside a dedicated time to intentionally deepen our communication and communion with God. The practice of prayer is to life with God what my wife down here in the first row, what our date night is to our marriage. 
We had that last night. We live together. We're in the same house together. We sleep next to each other. We're together all the time. But when we have date night, we have this time where we set aside time and we go out. And if it's in the budget that month, we share a meal. But we live in Atlanta, so that's about once a month. And I'm a pastor. And most of the time, it's a picnic at home. But nonetheless, what we do is we have an intentional time with no distraction. Boy, last night was fiery, baby. That was one of our best date nights in a long time. Do you agree with that? All right, give me that. All right. So our phones are away. It was awesome. Our children are away, and phones and children are about the same thing, okay, in our life. They're highly, highly, highly hard. Um, and so phones away and children are away, and we take this time to share, to connect at a deeper level in order, watch, to deepen our love all week long. In the same way, the practice of prayer is learning to set aside intentional moments in your daily ritual and your weekly routine to deepen your connection to God all of the time. So, of course, our desire for you and for our community today is not that you just learn about prayer through teachings and not that you just experiment with different types of prayer, but what I, or like what I'll offer you in a moment. All of that's good, but our desire is that you live a more deeply connected life to God in the busyness and chaos and noise of the culture around us. So for a few moments, would you explore with me some stages to prayer? Stages to prayer. Now, when you're first learning to pray, there's a bit of progression kind of from one stage to the next. But it is a little bit misleading for me to even say that because the spiritual journey is not linear. You never really mature beyond any one dimension of prayer. The spiritual journey is less like a straight line and more like an ever-tightening kind of spiral that you just circle around and around. The further you go, the deeper with God you go. And it kind of just bleeds all together. So I want you to think of these like dimensions of prayer or stages in your spiritual journey, or if you like to think of it this way, layers by which you open deeper and deeper parts of yourself to God. Now, if you're like me, I bet you've experienced this before, that God is somewhat inconsistent in the way he likes to answer prayer. Am I the only one this morning? Has anybody been praying anything in 2023 that you did not see come to pass? Can I get just a witness? Okay, so God is a bit inconsistent in how he answers prayer. And sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, I'm aligned with heaven. But other times it's like, what happened? I've been through this in my own life. Prayer has been so consistent. So sometimes I've been like, you know, well, well, maybe I'm not using the right formula. I know it's acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Maybe I'm praying TCAP. That's what's wrong. In 23, I played TCAP, okay? I need to go back to acts, okay? TCAP is not where it's at. And so we think in some way it comes to a formula or we think something's out of order or we think what in the world's happened in my life or we think, man, did I do something to make God or I'm not approaching God right? And, and don't judge me, but I'm going to tell you all as your pastor, in my moment of weakness, I sometimes feel like I have a schizophrenic, a schizophrenic prayer life. Maybe some of you, you wouldn't say it probably, but I'll say it for you. So let me say it for you. Um, I don't doubt God's heart, Pastor Craig, but boy, I sure am starting to doubt his power a little bit. I know he's good because I see it in the person of Jesus, but, but this whole talk about this interventionist God who still does stuff today, maybe I was a little bit too excited and got around too many Pentecostal charismatics. And we exaggerated that for God just to be nice to him. Or maybe it's not me. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not God. Maybe it's me. And maybe I'm not fasting enough. Or maybe I'm not praying with faith. Or maybe I'm praying the wrong way like I'm ending prayers. My prayer's in your name. And God's like, in your name, in my name, in Jesus' name. Like, what's happening here? I think this really in many ways just leads us to ask the larger question. It's just, how does prayer work? Well, I want to present my take on that. Maybe the question is not how does prayer work, but what kind of prayers am I praying? So maybe it's not on God's side, but maybe it's on our side investigation. Now, I want to present you something very simple. I can't moralize these stages, and I can't build a biblical theology of the three stages of prayer, but I think if you'll move through them with me faithfully, you'll see that they do help. Stage number one is not just for the babe, and stage number three is not just for the black belt. But stage number one is prayers of request. These are the kind of prayers, first stages of prayer, that we just call prayers of request, which is prayer honestly about getting what we want from God. And this is what it starts when you first become a Christian. A lot of our prayers stay here. We simply present requests to God where we just ask God to act, and He just acts. He just does stuff for a lot of people. This is truly represented in the early stages of their walk with God. When they're new Christians or new believers, believers, it just seems like you pray and He answers immediately. I tell people all the time, God answered more prayers in the first three months I followed Him than the next 10 years. He did it. It's just the way it works. I'm going to tell you why I think that works that way in a moment. 
But it's the prayers of request. He just answers prayers. Like you're in a cafe and you're like, God, if you're real, I just ask in the next five minutes, my friend that I haven't seen in two years would walk through the door. Amen. You look up, they immediately walk through the door and you're like, hey, what are you doing here? I know exactly why you're here. I just summoned you to this Starbucks through prayer. I just did it. Yep. I just did it. I just talked to God. But it's so great because in this stage, it's like everything we request God to do, he does. He's just present and he does these things for you. Now, I'm going to tell you, I do these things with my kids, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but I do these things where I have check-ins with my kids. I remember several years ago, several years ago, one of the first times I ever did this with Marley. She's like four years old. She's so cute. And I'm like, hey, Marley, I'll check in. How is, how, how is your dad doing? How am I doing as a dad? And she said, well, you know, like basically, dad, you're doing a great job. And I was like, really, tell me a bit about that. She said, I, I don't think I'd change anything. I'm like, really, babe? I'm like, why is that? And she said, well, basically, you do everything I want you to do. <laughs> and I thought about it, and I'm like, basically, I do everything she wants me to do. And there's something wonderful about that, because I, as a father, am being established in her mind as having right nature. But boy, I don't stay that way, do I? And neither does your father. It starts that way. But boy, it's dangerous if you stay that way. So if I were to check in with the little 11-year-old today, she wouldn't say, one of the things I love about you, Dad, is that you let me do whatever I want. She'd say, one of the new ways that I know you love me is that you don't let me do whatever I want. Something shifts. Richard Foster says this. He says, as we're learning to pray, we discover an interesting progression. In the beginning, our will is to struggle with God's will. We beg, we pout, we demand, we expect God to perform like a magician or shower us with blessings like Father Christmas. We major in instant solutions and we manipulate God through prayers, but then we go into difficulty. And as difficult as the time of struggle is, we must never despise or try to avoid it. It is an essential part of our growing and deepening in things spiritual. To be sure, it's an inferior stage, but only in the sense that a child is at an inferior stage to that of an adult. The adult can reason better and carry heavier loads because both brain and brawn are more fully developed. But the child is doing exactly what we would expect at that age. So what's this? It's a part of kingdom of life. You, a kingdom of life. You have needs. You, you're a child of God. You say help, and he responds. That's the first stage of prayer. Can I just say something to you, though? Honestly, in this stage, you're just asking God for your will to be done on earth. And he's just so kind, he does it sometimes. Because it's in his nature. But being weaned off immediate answers to what we, can, we want can be painful. But God does this to ask a question of us, which is, do you only love me because I do things for you? Or would you love me because of who I am to you? Do you love me for me or do you love me for what I do? And this is the second stage of prayer. These are called prayers of relationship. Prayers of relationship. God's not trying to show us his power and what he can do. He's trying to show us his face and his heart. He's trying to show us what he's like. So you, you see this development out of rather than just help me, God, you, and thank you, God, and to who are you, God? God, show me your glory. You see this in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, David said, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now, how many of you, if I was to say, hey, look, what's the first three words that come to mind when you think about God? And you would say, beauty. Hey, what do you want to do with your life? Well, you know, one of the things I was considering before college was gazing on the beauty of the Lord in his temple. That's what I was really considering. Beauty? Temple? Something shifted in David's life. Why? He got a vision of who God is, and his response is no longer, I don't need to see your power. I need to see your face. That's growth. I don't need to see what you can do anymore, God. I need to see who you are. I need to look straight in your face. And it just, it just, is it just might and what you can do? It's who you are. But then a third stage emerges on the horizon. And I think this is not a stage that God brings you into. I think it's a stage God invites you into. Yes. And I think we have to have the choice to respond. And I would just honestly tell you, I don't think most American Christians do. Because right. it's really hard. This third stage of prayer is what we call the prayer of relinquishment. The prayer of relinquishment. This is the stage of prayer where prayer changes us. 
I want to give you a statement. Next slide. Wrestling with God changes us into the kinds of people who are finally willing to do God's will. That's this kind of prayer. This is a whole other level of prayer. Things that we wouldn't do in stage one prayers get done by people in stage three prayers. These are not prayers of God, please do what I want. These are prayers of God, I don't want to do it, but I surrender to you so that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This kind of prayer means a, is a means of getting God's will done on earth, not my will done on earth. And it's only by sitting in the place of relationship that this will emerge on the horizon where God will invite you to a place of deeper surrender, to relinquish. And it'll be painful, and it'll be costly, and I don't think God loves us any less if we don't go with Him. But I still think most people just say, I'm willing to stay here in stage two. So I just want to say, when you're in a place of prayer, be very careful because prayer will change you. It'll change you. Prayer will turn you into the kind of person, if you stay in it long enough, if you sit with God long enough, where you're willing to do things you would never want to do in stage one. Why? So that God's kingdom comes on the earth as it is in heaven. So here's the truth. I think the evangelization of the entire globe would happen in one year if every Christian on the globe relinquished their rights to their lives we'd have the world won in 365 days. Let me take it another step. All the justice in the world that could be solved by the church of Jesus Christ if for one calendar year everybody said Matthew 25 will be my lifestyle. God is a good father. And what happens is he's kind and he promises to bless us. That's true. If that's where you are in stage one, praise God. Stage two is the prayer of relationships where he's just releasing these things about our identity and our future and our desire for him, not what he can do. It's a beautiful, beautiful stage of prayer. If you're in there, enjoy it. But I believe on the horizon, a third kind of prayer, the prayer of relinquishment where you step into the place of prayer and God just changes you to want and to desire something altogether different. Now let's continue to look at the text. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 2. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say... I want you to notice two, two things about the text here we're about to read. What Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, first off, and then secondly, how Jesus teaches disciples to pray. First of all, let's look at what Jesus teaches disciples to pray. Protestants call this the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up Catholic, this is called the Our Father Prayer. It's not just a liturgy it is, or a pre-made or pre-written prayer. It's also a theology. What I mean by that is this the Lord's Prayer is a theological framework for prayer. It's a set of assumptions about the nature of God, really, that frame all of our life with God in prayer. For example, a lot of people equate the word prayer with asking God for things, which is two types of prayer called petition and intercession. And while that's embedded in the Our Father of the Lord's Prayer, notice it doesn't happen until it's halfway through. The whole first half of the Our Father prayer that we'll work through in a moment is just theological. And really, what's so amazing, it's if you can say this term, it's psycho-spiritual orientation to the reality of God that when we come into prayer, we come with a new understanding. So I want to give you just real quickly four truths from the text. First of all, Notice this, for Jesus, God is our Father. God is our Father. It's the first line in the NIV, it just says Father, or you may have our Father. In Aramaic, which is the language Jesus likely spoke, it's Abba, what a child or a son or a daughter would call their father. It's a term of affection. In Jesus' day, it was a revolutionary way to address God. The New Testament uh, scholar named Joachim Jeremiah, he writes this. He says, there's not a single example of the use of Abba as an address to God in the whole of Jewish literature. What I mean to, you, to, to tell you is that arguably Jesus is the first person in human history to address God as Father. No one else have ever done that. No one's ever said that to God. He says, Father. That's how Jesus thought of God, and that's how Jesus wants you to think of God as disciples or followers. Now, I have to pause here for a moment and gently touch on the pain in the room. And I just want to name that for many of you in this room, this would be one of the most difficult moments in your spiritual journey because of the pain or the wounding from your own biological father. How do you pray to God as your father when your father abused you sexually in any way or abandoned you or you've been suffering at the hands of men in your whole life? Well, how do you then slip in overnight to a tender mode of Abba? But this painful journey that you likely need to go on is healing, essential, because in Jesus' mind, when it comes 
to the word God. Watch this, God. We use this word all we want, but I don't know how many people in this room, 100 people, there are probably 100 different ideas or things come to mind when we say God. And listen to me. Whatever comes to mind when I say God will either make or break not just your prayer life, but the whole trajectory of who you become. Why? Because we become like our vision of God, for better or for worse. That's what we become like. Listen, unless you break, next slide, the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to God in prayer. And they're demonic strongholds. I don't mean to try to scare anybody, but they're demonic strongholds of wrong perceptions of who God is. And that's why we have no prayer life. Some of you, you have a demonic stronghold in your mind of a false image of God that's keeping you away from the real true God on display in Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. If you grew up in the far-right religious household, you have this view of God as kind of a tyrant in the sky whose just baseline emotion is just anger and disappointment at all times. And that's how you think God is. Every time you screw up, it's like a buzzer in heaven goes off and the pointer and the glare, maybe because that's what your parent was like or your pastor was like or your authority figure was like. If that's your image of God, who would want to pray to a God like that? Who would want to open a deep layer of wounding to a heart like that? Or if you grew up on the West Coast, I think like one out of a hundred people from the state of California think God is mad at them. The 99 others just think God wants them to have awesome sex all the time with whoever they want, anytime they want. So God is not the angry tyrant. He's just your cosmic sex therapist who just wants you to be true to yourself. That's the current culture of America. Now, let me, let me, I'm not going to get political, but let me talk for a moment. So we've got those on the left looking at the, the, those on the right and say, you angry religious fundamentalist. I'm like, time out. Do you do understand that there's religious fundamentalists on the left too, right? You, do, you, you get this, right? And the nice thing about a kind of West Coast, you know, bohemian God who just loves the word love but wants to redefine what love is very differently from Jesus. The nice thing about that God is they'll do whatever you want them to do. They don't disagree with you on anything. They hate all the people you hate and they love all the people you love. They agree with all your political opinions. That God is awesome. The really sucky thing is that that God is a made-up figment of your imagination. So when you pray, it's empty. He can't hear he can't respond. That's why Jesus and our culture is so utterly essential. It's through Jesus we have a picture, a revelation of who God is. Not based on my aesthetic intuition or what people say on the street or what's called cool in Atlanta or what a generational consensus is in America about who Jesus is, but on who God says God is. Jesus comes from the Father to make him known so that, yes, there's a mystery to God that we will never fathom, but there are parts of God that have become known in Jesus, so we must all begin in our spiritual journey with the healing of our false images of God and we must come to view God at some level as our father or we'll never move forward. The main emotional word that's used for God in all the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, I looked it up this week, you ready? Compassion. The number one emotional disposition of God, compassion. His primary emotional trait is compassion. In the Old Testament, the word is rahum. It's literally the word for a father or a parent. It's more often, though, used for a mother, of how a mother feels about her infant child. If you're a mother, you know, even if you're a dad at some level, there's this miracle when a baby's born and some conspiracy of heaven and neurobiology conspire together in the ER room or in the labor and delivery room and you just feel instantly, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mystery. You instantly feel this love for this little thing that just wrecked your body and cost you thousands of dollars and you don't sleep at night and it stinks and it poops. It doesn't say anything to you and it grows up and it breaks your heart and takes your debit card. And it's just this outpouring of love that instantly you feel for this child and it's and it's overwhelming it's compassion that's the word used in the scripture all throughout the scripture for what the father feels towards humans and especially out of the mouth of Jesus for how God feels towards you that's God's baseline emotional disposition does God get angry yes but it's the anger of a mother or father my wife down here in the first row she's about the nicest person you ever meet until she's not now, she's so kind, but if my kids push her to a certain level, not based on ego, but when they do something mean, mean or stupid, I mean, she gets angry and it is fierce, but it comes out of a heart of just love and compassion and goodwill. 
When you say, or close your eyes or don't close your eyes, and you say, our Father, you have to, in that moment, feel all of the compassion, all of the hospitality, all the affection pouring out from the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit into the depth of your being. That's the first thing you must realize about prayer. Secondly, God is as close as the air. What? In the next line, I'm not making this up, a footnote. If you'll look in your Bible right there, it says in the NIV or SFV, ASV or NLT, right after the word Father, and it says, in heaven. Now, there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer. Did I throw you off when I read it earlier when you're standing up? You're like, oh, we skipped the statement because there are two versions. Luke here is kind of the shorter version, and then in God, Matthew of Gospel, you get the director's cut. It's longer. But even in Luke's version, we have some manuscripts from the first century who have the full version of our Father in heaven. Now, heaven's a real tricky word. Let me talk about it a moment. When we say heaven in English, most people think of the cloud city and outer space you go to when you die. But the Greek word is uranos, and it's plural, heavens. And it was a word in the first century just for the air or atmosphere. Did you know it took 300 years before heaven became symbolic for the spiritual realm? It used to just be air. Just air. Either way, we have to hear it this way. Our Father, who's in the air. Now, air's everywhere. Air's up against you. It's underneath your clothes. It's against your skin. Biologically, it's oxygen air running through your bloodstream. That's how close God is to you. So the next thing Jesus wants you to realize is when you come to pray, you're not praying to some being out past Jupiter, out with Elon Musk. Okay? You're becoming aware of the God who's not only all around you, but who is, as St. Augustine said in the 4th century, God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Why did Jesus go to a mountain to pray? Why do so many of us, when we go hiking or camping or backpacking, why do we often feel God's presence so much more out in nature than in the chaos of our daily life? Is God more present up in the Blue Ridge Mountains than He is in Atlanta? Well, yes, He actually is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but listen. There's something about when we get out of the human-made, sinful distraction, godliness, immorality, and all of the things. It is what it is. It's like all of a sudden we go, oh, yeah. God is all around me in the air. Third, the primary goal of prayer is the worshipful enjoyment of our Father's company. That's the primary goal. The worshipful enjoyment. The next line, he says, hallowed be your name. Now, okay, that's a weird word. How many of you use the word hallow this week? Or ever, right? <laughs> we don't use that word. It basically means, it's the verb form of the word to make holy. It means to revere, respect the holiness of God, and to be holy. Now, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not actually a moral word primarily in Scripture. We always think of holiness as sinlessness. But originally, holy in the Hebrew culture, it just literally means special, unique, beautiful, and different. To say God is the holy is to say there's no other being in reality that's as special and unique and distinct and different as the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace. The late Timothy Keller, who's now with the Lord, writes this. To hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy towards God and even more a wondrous sense of His beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things as in how successful we are or our social relationships, we therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy, when life is going smoothly and our truest heart's treasures seem safe. It does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see Him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, God has not become our happiness. Now, don't hear that in like a guilt or shame kind of way. Hear that in the, there is an experience of God that many of you have probably not had yet. And I'm one of millions or billions of people who had a little bit of taste who can tell you, first of all, prayer is the best thing this side of eternity. And y'all, there are moments in prayer when somehow the distraction and the chaos and the noise somehow starts to fall away. And if you've never had this experience, oh, our prayers for you to have it just this, even this day. 
where somehow all of a sudden you find yourself below the well of your soul, finally touching the infinite sea of love that is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and all you can do is try to say thank you. Not just around you, but this deeper than you could possibly be in yourself. And there are no words to even name that feeling, friends. And when you begin to enter into that joy, that love, that affection, that delight, that hospitality, that laughter, that go back and forth between the Son and the Spirit, because the Father, Son, and Spirit are laughing and holding one another. And when we get wrapped up in that, this divine dance of prayer, there's nothing better. And watch this. It doesn't cost you a penny. And you don't have to have a coach coach you there. You just have to stop long enough and sit down and wait for that joy and bliss. I don't know anything else can offer that for your soul. And if you experience something like that, you want everybody else to know. You just want your friends to know. You want to hallow God's name. You want other people to experience the beauty of who God is. And finally, fourth and finally, for Jesus... Our prayers really do make a difference. What's the next line? Your kingdom come. Again, if you look at the footnote you see in your Bible, it says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just notice one very simple thing that is actually quite controversial to American Christians. I was thinking about this this week, Pastor Chad. When Jesus prays this prayer and teaches this, he assumes that his kingdom has not yet come and that his will has not yet been done, at least not in full. In part, yes, but not in full. And he assumes, and he seems to assume, that through prayer we partner with Jesus to bend America and the reality in the direction of our Father's good intentions. We partner in prayer to bend our world into God's intent. That's what God invites us in prayer. Listen, there's actually a really strong undercurrent of fatalism in the Western church and in the American church that is a death blow to prayer, where we're very fatalistic, very negative. I love Dallas Willard. He, he was a professor at, at philosophy at USC. He said this, watch this. He says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he's answering our prayer when he's only doing what he's going to do anyways. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. Watch this jacked up view of sovereignty. It's all over America. Listen, let Dallas, let Dallas hit it head on. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray, is not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. So when you come to God with prayer, come with a holy tremor in your body and be careful for what you ask for in the best sense of that word. It'll change you. It'll make you somebody different. When you get to a point of relinquishment, your life will change. Your heart will change. Your desires for God's kingdom will change. And it won't be you having to modify it. Now, there's so much more we could say about the Lord's Prayer. I just want you to see, last thing, how different Jesus' framework is from a lot of ours. Can I ju juxtapose it? We think of God as grumpy dictator. He's actually the Father. We think He's far away in outer space. No, He's actually as close as the air. We think the main point of prayer is to get things. No, it's just to enter into the Trinity. We assume that what's going to happen is going to happen with or without our prayers. No, we change the reality with the power of God. No wonder we're not drawn to prayer. So that's what Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, just a few short words on how Jesus teaches us to pray. Let me give you a simple observation that is actually quite helpful. Jesus does not start by teaching us to pray whatever's in our mind or heart, whatever we would call just extemporaneous prayer. There's a place for it. But just whatever you're thinking or whatever you're feeling, just say to God. That's great. It's not bad to do, but... But notice Jesus starts by saying, when you pray, say. Everybody say, say. say. The way that's translated, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight argues that verse 2 can be translated this. When you pray, recite this. And then comes the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus is tapping into an ancient Hebrew custom of praying pre-made or pre-written prayers or what some we would call today liturgical prayers. And this is what we mean. 
just praying me pre-made prayers that somebody else wrote for you to guard and unite and guide you and I's mind and heart and life into union with God. A few days ago, I was sent a beautiful pre-made prayer from Pete Gregg over in the UK for what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now. I don't know how to pray for that. I just know I'm heartbroken. It's an impossible situation. I don't even know what to pray for half the time. So somebody else who's thoughtful and wise and puts some time because he sees it every day was able to craft a short prayer that are really helpful in times of pre-made prayer. So I've got one, two, two final things I'm going to give to you. I'm going to make it so practical so you can flesh it out in Connect Group today. I'm going to challenge you for the next few months to pray daily some pre-made prayers to teach you how to pray. Now, let me give you some reasons for this, why it's important. The Lord's Prayer, let me, let me give you examples first. Let's talk about examples of pre-made prayer. First of all, the Lord's Prayer. That's a pre-made prayer. Prayed three times a day by early Christians. The Psalms, which by the way is literally called the prayer book of the Bible. I know you may not know this, but prayer Psalms are not meant to be read. They were never wrote to be read. They are meant to be prayed. Scripture itself. Many people find great life in praying Scripture back to God because you know you're praying in line with God's intention. Bobby Rosen leading us this morning, so many others. Ben, Thomas, Sophia. Singing is another prayer. Because listen, St. Augustine in the 4th century, he said to sing is to pray twice. Now why? Because we don't think of singing as liturgical, our modern worship, but it is because we all just prayed a pre-made prayer that we saw off the screens and we all prayed it for like 20 minutes. And we did it twice and then three times. And it formed us. It taught us something theologically. It lifted our hearts and minds to God. We're all pre praying a pre-made prayer together. Next one, liturgy. Liturgy. And more historic streams of the Book of Common Prayer, like in the Anglican tradition or in the Liturgy of the Hours in the Catholic tradition, which is a beautiful work. And then in today's world, friends, you've got great apps you got great apps like Lectio 365. If you don't know Lectio 365, it is so beautiful because you open it up and you got a morning prayer and you got a night prayer. And what's awesome is it's five and a half minutes and it'll do it for you. You can start the devotional. It'll play it for you for five and a half minutes. I've been doing this for the last year. First of January. It'll a tell day me. of rest for billions of Christians around the world. So it's Sabbath. On which we pause the normal rhythms of our lives to pray a special Sabbath prayer. And then in the this season, stop. we're reflecting on how God invites us to live lives unfettered by the pressures and expectations of others. So that we may enjoy... And if you don't want to listen to it, read through it. It'll give you a Sabbath blessing. You hit amen. Then you got another one tonight. Lectio 365, there's apps. If you want resources, there's a book a good friend of mine wrote called Divine Design for Discipleship. At the, at the end of every chapter is a prayer normally written out based on that chapter. Start praying that prayer. Andrew Murray has an excellent book. It's been in my library for a decade called Ministry of Intercession. I'm going to give you my favorite one, my absolute favorite one. Paul Wesley Chilcote, the greatest Wesleyan scholar called a life-shaping prayer. And when you open it up, each day has a scripture, a meditation, a hymn, and a prayer. You can do it in the middle of the day. You can do it in the morning. You can do it in the afternoon, but it's pre-made. It's something that enables you to guide your heart and mind into God's grace. Those are all examples of talking to God. Now, let me tell you the type of situations it's helpful to, and this is where I'll end, to pray pre-made prayers. Next slide. Real important. When you don't really know what to say and you're first learning to pray, it's good to learn to pray pre-made prayers. I think, how do children learn to write? By tracing letters. How do we learn to pray? By tracing prayers. That's how we learn. By quoting, reading the Psalms, praying them out loud to God. Our Father, who art in heaven, or the Lord is my shepherd, so on. When you're traveling, number two, when you're traveling and you're away from your daily prayer rhythm, this is a great time to pray pre-made prayers. We all have habit cues of our daily life. We got a lot of new mamas right here. Number three, pre-made prayers are perfect when you're exhausted because you just had a baby or you're in a crazy season of work and you can't focus your mind. It's a great time to pray pre-made prayers. What about this when you're, when you're heartbroken, you're emotionally or physically unwell? It's hard to get inspired. You need help. 
Next one, when you long for greater articulation in your prayer and you're searching for the right words to express your heart to God, what happens when you want something thoughtful and intelligent, theologically weighty? What the last one, when you're in what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. When you're in the dark night of the soul, it's a great time to pray pre-made prayers. And you need a prayer, somebody else's faith to carry you through. And it's in those situations that a pre-made prayer can be very helpful. Now, there are limitations to this. It can feel inauthentic, sure, yeah. But if you bring your heart's attention to it, listen to me, you are guiding and guarding your mind to attune it with God. Now, next slide. The best way to learn to pray is not by listening to me talk to you about prayer. It's by praying. By praying. Come on, Bobby. This is crucial that we take Jesus' teaching in His own words, we put them into practice. So this week, I have given you little practices that if you want to adapt and adopt into your own life, awesome. Listen, I make recommendations, you all make decisions. So you do you. But this week, here's the two things I'm going to ask you to do. Two basic practices. You ready? Number one is just everybody. I'm asking for every person in the congregation. Number one, just create a daily prayer rhythm to create a place and a time. Just a daily habit and get real pragmatic. So here's the questions you need to ask yourself. Number one, when will I pray? First thing in the morning, at night, on my lunch break, when my baby's napping. Just as a general rule of thumb, pick your best time of day when you're most awake and alert. Number two, where will I pray? Where? Find somewhere distraction-free. That may mean going on a prayer walk early in the morning because you're kinesthetic and you need movement. It may mean like going into a closet like Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Three, how will I pray? You want to pray standing down or sitting up? You are an embodied person. I actually find that my posture and my breathing is absolutely essential to how I pray. If I can sit in different situations and breathe for a while can really help me connect with God. Some of you, you've lived all week with your shoulders like this. And then for the first time on Saturday, your shoulders dropped and you breathe. That's important. Those of you who are more kinesthetic, you may discover life by walking. My best friend, well, not best friend, good friend, he walks through the same park every day, every single morning. Just, just work with your body and work with your personality. Don't fit yourself into somebody else's mold. Here's the next one. How long will I pray? There's no right answer. I told my kids last night, I'm holding them accountable this afternoon. We're going to go home. And I'm going to hold them accountable for the year 2024. Knox and Marley, at least 15 minutes, but for my seven-year-old, five minutes a day. And to, to, to work with their own body. Separate from Scripture reading. I'm not talking about the discipline of Scripture reading here. I'm talking about the discipline of prayer. But how long do I do it? As a general rule of thumb, you need to do it long enough until you come to peace with God. And I just tell you, I don't know how long it'll take, but probably longer than you think. And probably longer than what you want. Francis DeSales, he said once, he said, each Christian needs a half hour of prayer each day, except when they're busy, then they need two hours of prayer. And don't let that freak you out. You may think I can barely get in three minutes. Great, get in three minutes every day this week. But if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. We make time for the things that are what? Important for us. So if you have time to watch a show with your spouse in the end of the day, you have time to pray. You do. If you have time to work out for forever, God, people go in life. They go in one life and they're working out for two and a half hours. Those pecs look like planters on the outside of windows. Like, tithe a little bit of that time to prayer. Here's the second practice. Just pick out a pre-made prayer and just talk to God this week. Daily rhythm, pick out a prayer. I've given you a whole list of where to find them. Just follow your heart. If you don't have a preference, I would highly recommend pray the Psalms. They're still the center of my prayer life, center of my devotion to God, and they're utterly beautiful. Come on, worship team. Remember this. There's not like a right way to pray. Everything I'm telling you today, it's all technique. But can I just remind you, technique is not for God. Technique is for... Technique's not for Him. It's for me. 
is to focus our mind and focus our heart and bring our whole self before God. I love this from the spiritual writer, Ronald Rollhauser. Look what he said. There's no bad way to pray and no single starting point for prayer. The spiritual masters offer one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer and show up regularly. Everything else, everybody say everything else, is negotiable and respects your unique circumstances. So just remember, the point of prayer is not to learn a technique. It's not to master a discipline. It's to be mastered by God. It's to open yourself to God. One of my favorite writers on prayer defines prayer as opening to God. And that's really the crux of spiritual life. For the disciple of Jesus, the driving question of a disciple of Jesus is how do I open deeper and deeper layers of my inner being to the peace and transformation and power of God to transform me into a person of love and joy and peace because transformation is His work, not ours. Y'all look at me, look at me. I want to address something. Prayer is not Christianized mindfulness. I'm seeing this all over TikTok and Instagram. I'm all for mindfulness. But there's something here underneath the surface. Prayer, I saw this week, I saw a Gen Zer who's got millions of followers said prayer is habit stacking your way to good mental hygiene. Y'all, I believe in all that. That's crucial. But prayer at the core is not habit stacking your way to good mental health. It's opening your heart deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into Trinitarian life. That's prayer. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.